This is Dollars and Change, a podcast about the intersection of business and social impact. Brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Welcome to Dollars and Change. I'm Catherine Klein. I'm the Vice Dean for Social Impact at Wharton, and I'm delighted today to be talking with Rachel Robichotti, who is the founder and CEO of Adesina Social Capital. Rachel, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. That's great. So I am just really looking forward to digging into Adesina Social Capital. Um, So let's just start with who you are and what you do. You describe your company as uh, an investment management firm committed to making large-scale systemic change through investments in public markets. So let's unpack that just a moment. You're going to make, you're planning to make, you're making large-scale systemic change at that through investments, got that in public markets, got that. But these are not elements that we normally think of, I think, in working together. And I'll just say by way of kind of context that within the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, uh, we do a lot of research, training, thinking about impact investing typically impact investing in, in private markets through venture capital, private equity. Uh, we do also do work on ESG and public markets. You seem to be doing something that's very interesting, distinctive, and a hybrid. So tell us about your strategy and where it fits in this ecosystem of impact investing in ESG and maybe traditional investing. Sure. Um, Well, we call what we do social justice investing. And so it fits very broadly under the umbrella of ESG. I mean, I would say ESG is kind of our cousin, Um, but we aren't simply taking into consideration environmental, social and governance factors um, and kind of our financial decisions about what will be in a portfolio. We're doing something that's pretty different. We're serving as a bridge between social justice movements and the financial markets. And the only way to really go about doing that and making large scale systemic change is to, of course, make impact in your own portfolio. But you have to, if you're going to make systemic change, um, you're actually going to be required to have impact that extends well beyond your own portfolio. And the only real way to do that is by organizing other investors. And what we do, we we spend a lot of our time doing outside of building portfolios is organizing other investors to focus on the same criteria and metrics that we do. And we get those directly from the social justice organizations that are embedded within the communities that we intend to impact. And so it's quite a so, quite a bit different than just working on your portfolio companies, right? So let's let's continue to kind of unpack that because you said you said a lot. You have a so many people when they think about impact and impact investing are going to think about finding particularly interesting high impact uh, portfolio companies, specific privately owned companies uh, or privately held companies that they believe can have this you know, high impact, social impact, positive environmental impact, promising financial returns. You chose not to do that strategy and see the potential for real impact in public markets and publicly traded companies, a lot of household names. Why public markets? Well, I, I mean, I have to be perfectly honest with you. I believe that there's a lot of um, window dressing that happens uh, inside of uh, our larger 
public markets world when it comes to talking about issues outside of the purely financial factors. And mm -hmm. all of that kind of that being understood, it's important to us to notice at the same time that the vast majority of our lives are greatly impacted by the behavior of publicly traded companies. They're our employers, they're the advertisers that we're seeing, they're the major contributors to political campaigns. Publicly traded companies are these huge actors in all of our lives, and for better or worse, we've decided as human beings to organize ourselves in this way. And it's one of the ways that we have organized ourselves to um, to do things collectively. And what we found is that inside of the ESG world, simply looking at metrics that we that sound related to an issue that investors are looking to impact um, isn't really getting us very far. There's been there's been tremendous interest in having impact and investing in, in the ESG world. And we still landed ourselves in 2020 with multiple pandemics raging and not many of us happy with the world that we're living in. And so what we're looking, um, what we're looking at is how can we take this very powerful way that we've decided to organize ourselves as human beings inside of these publicly traded companies, how can we bring a social justice lens to that investing in particular? And we do that primarily through divestment screens. And in our world, divestment is sometimes looked at as like, well, that's not very helpful. You should be looking for individual high impact companies. They're probably smaller and private. But what we're looking at is where the locus of power is. And it really is inside of these larger publicly traded companies. And there's a massive disconnect between what all of these social justice movements are telling us is so important and the metrics that investors and public markets are actually using to assess whether or not um, something meets the moment that we're in. Bringing forward a social justice movement's definition of justice into a portfolio. Right. So, so part of it, again, is, is about this public markets, influencing the public markets, influencing these publicly traded companies because they are so influential in our lives. Another piece of what you're trying to do is really go beyond um, what you regard as sort of well, increasingly traditional, increasingly accepted ESG screening. So for anybody who's listening and doesn't know what that means, ESG refers to in environmental, social, and governance standards. And and what you're arguing is that you're going to take, you've got different criteria. You're you're moving beyond the traditional ESG or what might be more conventional ESG standards to take a harder look at at companies. Um, so I know that in the investment uh, vehicles you're launching, and your US will soon launch this social justice all cap global ETF. Um, when you talk about the methodology that that you're using with this ETF. You emphasize four criteria, racial justice, gender justice, economic justice, and climate justice. So let's start to dig into that. Um, and so one of the areas, um, let's start with gender justice. Um, when I think of a lot of screening that gets done uh, in, in various investment vehicles that say we're empowering women, the preliminary screen, often the only screen, is investing in companies with women on the board or maybe women in the C-suite. Uh, and so that, those are the prin principal criteria, easy to find that information, relatively easy to screen. Are, are you doing something different when it comes to gender justice? If I'm going to invest in your, you know, in your ETF, uh, 
what's what's going to be different when it comes to gender justice? Well, a lot of what um, I hear you referring to when it comes to to the ETF is the public filing with the SEC. And so, you know, I can speak about what's in that prospectus. Um, and in that prospectus, we talk about the fact that we are uh, tracking to the Adesina Social Justice Index. So I can talk very freely about that index. And I would say that... Um, when we look to make an impact, uh, we go directly to the community that we intend to impact. And so our work um, in gender justice really came out of the Me Too movement and going directly to survivors groups and social justice organizations working on behalf of survivors. And we asked them, how can investors truly support you? And what we found is that many investment managers um, had built gender lens strategies really to meet investor demand, but the strategies were based exactly as you said on board composition or other readily available but pretty much irrelevant metrics that didn't actually address this core issue that they pretty quickly pointed out to us, which was the core issue here is serial sexual harassment in the workplace and the policies that allow that to continue. Um, you know, forced arbitration has been shown to favor employers over harassment survivors, and it silences the victims, which creates this culture of acceptance of sexual harassment in the workplace. So to actually support the Me Too movement and make a really significant investor contribution to gender justice and workplace safety, what we had to do was know where companies stand on this crucial crucial issue, both for the purposes of investment screening, but also for shareholder engagement. And unfortunately, at that time, um, there was no database where that that information existed. It's not part of what ESG managers were gathering. And um, primarily, companies had gone on the record as having ended that practice in response to employee demands, um, where employees had done walkouts and that sort of thing. Um, when we started, there were only five publicly traded companies that had publicly disavowed the practice. Let me let me interrupt you there, just because uh, sure. I don't want to go too far without making sure that people understand what this practice is. Mm -hmm. so, explain to us. Uh, what's what this forced arbitration strategy is and why it's problematic. So forced arbitration um, for employees is the process of requiring an employee to sign away their right to go to court, usually at the beginning of employment, if they ever have any claims against the employer up to and including sexual harassment claims. And the trouble with that is that when there is a sexual harassment claim, it takes the proceedings into a private arbitration process. And that private arbitration process is one that has usually a non-disclosure agreement around it. So the proceedings aren't public. And um, it also disproportionately is shown to favor the employer. So the employers work with these same private arbitrators again and again and favor the employer. So when the employer wins, when an employee has brought a sexual harassment claim, the predator wins as well and right. is allowed to continue that behavior. And not only are they allowed to continue, but usually the person who brought the claim is silenced from even talking about it. So that just enables serial sexual harassment in the workplace. And, and, in, the, and in the climate or culture of this company, as, you've, as yes. you mentioned. Absolutely. Right. And so in order to screen, as you said, in order to screen companies on this, uh, you know, an idea that you've emphasized is coming from these communities and these Me Too activists, you had to gather the data and find more information. How do you we did. 
we created an industry coalition that is investors, workers, and consumer activists coming together to actually find out which publicly traded companies have this practice and which don't. And in the process of gathering the data, providing the evidence to the companies about um, how all of these stakeholder groups are very interested in the practice ending. So when we started, there were, um, as I said, five companies that had ended the practice, and that moment had somewhat fizzled out. Um, since we began a couple of years ago, we're now at a place where over 300 companies have ended the practice, which impacts over 10 million workers. Um, and we have a minimum of $54 billion in assets that signed on to a public statement that we were able to take to these companies, um, letting them know that this is something that institutional investors are interested in, is like really ending this practice. Um, and it, it's such an important issue and one that's not easily missed when you are in relationship and conversation with those who are closest to the problem. They are very happy that people are paying attention to women on corporate boards, but that's not actually addressing the core issue. And in all of the areas that we're doing work and we're investing, we are talking directly to the impacted community so that we know what the right metric is to measure. And ultimately, sometimes that means we have to build the data set in order to measure it. And so what does that look like when it comes to racial justice? So again, when I think racial justice, the most obvious indicator that would come to mind is uh, you know, fund saying, okay, we're not going to invest in private prisons. Mm -hmm. what I'm else, glad you what know that. You, That's not always <laughs> you know, after um, the summer of 2020, there were so many public companies making comments about their support of racial justice in this country, which is really refreshing and wonderful to hear. Um, many of their commitments and the conversation inside of investor circles has been specifically around increasing diversity um, and equity within their own firms. And again, racial justice movements, um, our partners like the Movement for Black Lives, and um, which is kind of at the core of um, a lot of this work, and and other organizations like the Poor People's Campaign that have an explicit racial justice lens tell us that, um, of course, jobs are important. Of course, diversity and equity is important. But you know what's really harming us is an unjust uh, criminal system. And what we really need to do is end profiting from the mass incarceration, primarily of black and brown people in this country. And so you're, you're right, and you have more information than others do to know that you even focus on private prisons. But in reality, there's only two private prisons that exist. And um, divestment there does matter. But when we talk again to our social justice groups, they understand that no company can stand alone and that there are financiers and major suppliers of the private prisons that also need incentive to stop doing business there and allowing um, that to continue. And so um, ours is not just the private prisons themselves, but it's private prison involvement and also the money bail system that feeds into the carceral system that we have in this country. So we worked with the American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers, and um, actually uh, work together to build out that money bail screen for publicly traded companies, as well as surveillance and immigrant 
detention, which are also very important factors and um, have uh, deep ties to racial justice. And we went outside of that realm as well, based on what our partners told us to additionally look at for-profit colleges because they specifically target low-income students, people of color, single parents, veterans, and leave them with these mountains of debt, but without the means to pay for it um, disproportionately. And we were... Um, uh, we were also made aware that the same systemic pressures that have created the racial injustice that we live under now are also at work in the military um, Israeli occupation of Palestine. And so um, and so in solidarity with a number of different organizations, including the United Nations, um, that's something that we added to our racial justice exclusion list as well. So it's a really comprehensive list that has global solidarity, solidarity across different racial groups as well mm -hmm. if, when you look at both mass incarceration and then like immigrant detention and then it's also staying on the cutting edge by looking at what are the feeder systems the money bail surveillance those types of systems that are also part of our unjust carceral system so uh, to talk about and i know we have limited time i want to ask you um about your so many things i want to ask you but i want to ask <laughs> you about your theory of change and and does investment screening and as you said screening out the really bad actors does this drive is how do you see you know Addison's role in driving change uh, after all if I don't invest in these companies and I screen them out I invest with you I screen out these companies and I'm not investing in them somebody else is investing in them so how are you really how do you think you're driving change. You know, that's been the argument against investment for quite some time. Um, Weber out of Harvard has been one of the foremost folks saying also, you know, that divestment doesn't really work. And I'm not sure whether or not you saw the Financial Times article recently where he's surprisingly is finally kind of turning a corner and saying, oh, my goodness, well, this time maybe divestment is working. Um, when we kind of take a look at the private prison situation um, and their share prices, also, the very steep decline in oil has a direct correlation to the invest-divest movement um, inside of public markets. Uh, and the it is not that divestment doesn't work. It's that divestment that is localized in one portfolio, almost no matter the size, will never have the impact that you need. What's really required is that we build solidarity within the investment world so that our collective actions are actually having an impact on share prices. And just, and it's important to remember this too. Most of those in the C-suite, their primary compensation is coming inside of stock, right, in that company. And so when you're uh, impacting the share prices, you're impacting their take-home pay. Right. I would also say that you are driving a lot of social pressure and social norms by right. publicizing this information, right? So there's, there's power that comes from both money and the, the social pressure. What about returns? Are people, are you know, are, as you envision your ETF, as you think about your other strategies, um, you know, can one do this without taking a hit to one's financial performance? Are we talking concessionary returns, market rate returns? How do you think about this? What do you expect? Well, I think that um, we have to really be looking at long-term returns that in the short term, um, any number of things can happen. And if you're truly investing in alignment with social justice values, you aren't going to move off of that simply because it's a better idea to invest in hydraulic fracturing in North America in 2009. Um, so maybe in the short term, you'll have um, 
poorer returns. However, in the long term, what most investors want is sustainable returns. And what we know is that long-term sustainable returns come from sustainable companies, companies that actually take care of their stakeholders, their supply chains. And so what we believe that we're doing is instead of taking large returns up front and not thinking about the future, what we're really doing is looking at what is the long-term return that we are wanting to achieve inside of the financial markets, and is there a way to do that regeneratively? And it's important to say that often the things that are unethical end up becoming illegal um, or having um, other um, unsustainable uh, characteristics. And so I think a lot of us in 2020 are very happy that we're not invested in fossil fuels or private prisons at this point, as those stock prices have really taken a hit and not come back. Got it. And um, and the last topic I want to raise with you is your role as a founder, as a person of color. Um, you know, the investment industry, the investment sector is astonishingly white male dominated. Maybe not astonishingly, but hugely white male dominated, right? We're seeing I, would, I would say astonishingly. I would say, I think it's pretty surprising. I don't know if it's astonishing. That's why. Over 80%. Yeah, given, given right. what the rest of yes. the United States looks like, for example, I think that's pretty, yeah. Pretty overwhelming. Right. Well, yes, no, exactly. I, I guess the question is: Is it surprising, or is it just a huge amount? It is whatever adverb we're using. Ah, uh-huh, is it surprising? Yes, very yeah, important. You know, right? Like firms like yours, uh, owned by women and minorities, manage only one percent of the seventy-one trillion dollars in assets in the United States. You know, there's the percentage of venture, venture VC investors who are black are you know one percent. Percentage who are women is probably eight percent according to the numbers I've been looking at. So this is a very white male dominated industry. Mm-hmm. What I'm curious for you to to tell us is how would you change that? What is your advice to Wharton to others about how we change the pipeline so that there are more women, more people of color? getting into more positions of ownership and control of where the money goes? Well, I believe that there's something that that younger generations know, particularly the millennials, that we seem a little later to understanding, um, which is that when you have a diverse team of people from non-traditional backgrounds in any area, they are ultimately going to bring a new perspective right? And new perspectives in our um, economy of service and innovation, new perspectives are invaluable. And so ultimately, it's not simply about deciding that we just want diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's actually about noticing that 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 new perspective is something that we all need if we are going to change the conditions that we are living under. And the folks who are most likely to have those are the people who sit outside of the traditional power structures. The way that you actually go about getting folks like us in uh, industries like finance that don't necessarily seem particularly hospitable to women and people of color. Um, what we've really had to do in our firm is look outside of finance, um, where we know in, in certain industries where we know like social justice work, where we know there are more women, people of color, LGBTQ um, folks. And what we do is tell them, you have a transferable skill. You may not have thought about finance, but this is where a lot of the power rests. And if what you want to do is really make a difference, we'll be with you from the beginning to the end of your journey. We'll bring you in and show you how you can transfer those amazing um, organizing and activism skills into something very valuable for all of us in the economy. Great. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for, for being with us, for talking with us about your 
firm. And uh, you know, again, really fascinating discussion and inspiring for many people who are exploring new ways to use finance to make a difference in the world. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's so important to have organizations like Wharton stepping out and asking the hard questions and staying on the cutting edge of uh, how we are all working to improve our world. So thank you for what you do. Thank you. Dollars and Change is brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. To learn more, visit us at socialimpact.wharton.upenn.edu.